Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello. Um, South Africa's case at the International Court of Justice has, I think, had a profound impact on a huge number of people. It gave a kind of glimmer of hope, I think, that Israel's impunity finally was challenged. And many, of course, felt that South Africa presented an overwhelming case in its argument that Israel is committing genocide against specifically the Palestinians of Gaza. Now, Israel has itself responded. It refused it previously. It's actually boycotted the ICJ. It certainly ignores its rulings, but it has presented its own case today. Now, what I'm going to do is talk to a brilliant expert. Um, I've been following his coverage on social media, and I was really, really struck by the depth, the nuance, the intelligence um, of what he wrote. It's Alonzo uh, Gomandi. Um, Gomandi, sorry. You'd think I would have checked before. We had a chat before about the your first name. Should have also checked how I pronounced your second name. So can we just correct myself? It's Gurmendi. Gurmendi, sorry. There we go. Alonzo Gurmendi. Um, it's a real honour. You're lecturer at international relations in the Warsaw News Department at King's College. Hello. Big honour to speak to you. How are you doing? Hi, it's great to be here, Owen. Let's just start. If it just, I want to just do a kind of quick summary of Israel's case. Because in terms of South Africa's case, obviously, many of us watched such a compelling presentation by some incredible lawyers from South Africa, also Ireland and Britain, but overwhelmingly, of course, South African, where they made the points about rarely has genocidal intent been so rarely spoke, spoken um, but because of the sheer level of genocidal statements from politicians, ministers, army officers and so on, that they linked it to conduct uh, by soldiers on the ground. Uh, that they uh, made the point about how supposedly humanitarian gestures were themselves genocidal, uh, forced removal of population and uh, uh, threat of violence without them able to, you know, without the means of life being there and elderly people, uh, the infirm being forced to flee at drop of a hat, that kind of thing. Uh, the, you know, the general, the assault on the conditions of life, leaving 80% of uh, the world's most hungry people in Gaza, the destruction of the medical system, the, the levelling of all infrastructure. I mean, it, it was so overwhelming that many felt, how on earth could Israel respond to that? Now, without turning you into a spokesperson for the Israeli states, which is not what we want to do, what's the basic, what was the Israeli kind of counter-argument to such a formidable argument? Right. So um, I think it is important to start by saying that um, the Israeli defense has its flaws and has its uh, um, uh, points where you can, um, let's say, counter-argue successfully. It is not a perfect um, presentation, but um, it is also, I, I've seen a lot of people say like, oh, this was terrible. It, it wasn't. Like it, it was a, a, a qualified, uh, well-made well defense um, with um, enough arguments to, to, to make against it. Um, but so... Let's not idealize it, and let's not, you know, say, "Oh, this is going to be a walk in the park." Um, I guess in that within that middle ground is, is where we should operate. And um, in that middle ground, Israel had a few key points. The first one would be that there's no dispute. Uh, they say that um, for there to be a dispute, you need to um, 
have a let's say a, a dialogue between two parties it's not you cannot just say i have a dispute with you and that's it you need some level of engagement and this engagement never happened this, this meeting between uh, south africa and israel where they say oh we don't agree never happened um honestly this was the the weakest point of the argument so i i, I would just brush past it um clearly there's a dispute clearly the rest of israel's presentation demonstrated that there's a dispute about whether there is genocide going on or not um the second one is that um Israel was very um, detailed in, in trying to argue that all, all the things that they are doing in um, Gaza to mitigate civilian hardship um, is evidence that there cannot be genocidal intent. They, they argue like no party that is actually doing, uh, that actually committing a genocide would go through, quote unquote, so much trouble, you know, uh, at the expense of their military operations to uh address civilians like dropping leaflets and constructing hospitals like field hospitals and, and floating hospitals and then uh i don't know allowing aid in and all of these things um which of course is is um i mean it, it was a long part of the presentation my my problem with that is um we are dealing with a situation where like i think uh, south africa said that 80 percent of the people with extreme hunger in the world are in gaza right now so at some point, if, if you know that that's what you're doing and you have uh, a response that is clearly even even Israel's allies are acknowledging the devastation that is occurring in, in Gaza right now. Um, if you know that what you're doing is not enough. So that's the weak spot. That's the weak point of that. Right. Because because then they can claim that they're doing things, but South Africa can counter you're doing not enough knowingly. And so that still reflects intent, um, which I think is what South Africa tried to do yesterday, anticipating this line of argument. Then the other main argument that Israel has is the this this um, well, long-standing claim that everything it does is a consequence of Hamas's own tactics and strategies of using civilians as shields. Um, and so all the agency goes to uh, Hamas and Israel is just responding, to which I think, again, the South African claim was um, quite successful in showing that um, I, there was this line at the end of the South African presentation that said, um, if you claim that you are specifically targeting Hamas and then you show images of entire neighborhoods burnt to the ground, uh, bombed to the ground, sorry, um, then that's not how a manhunt looks like. Right? So, so again, th there's, there's an argument that says, well, we have to deal with the reality on the ground that Hamas presents to us. Um, and the counter argument would be, well, but is that the way to do it? Um, does that denote that you're being forced to do this or are you going overboard, right? Um, and then there's the other, I guess, the key part of this, um, not necessarily of the provisional measures part of the discussion, but the merits of the case that Israel is claiming that it has a right to self-defense uh, and that any provisional measures um, that stop it from um, you know, defending itself in Gaza would go against the inherent right of self-defense, which is a principle of international law. Um, and I guess here's the crux of it all, because there is a previous opinion, an advisory opinion from 2004 by the International Court of Justice that said that um, Israel as the occupying power in um, Gaza does not have a right to self-defense over the territory that it, it occupies, because it, it is exercising you know, force already. Um, so it is interesting to see what, what the court will do with this. And we can talk about this in more detail, but I think this is a key aspect of the discussion. Um, 
and it will definitely shape how an order for provisional measures is drafted because this is an aspect of the entire case that i don't think the court will want to deal in 20 pages of provisional measures it'll want to dedicate enough time to you know address this claim in the merits phase so this will impact how any order looks like and it will impact um um let's say not impact it'll it'll it is very important because it's a key a key argument of palestine um, is that Israel doesn't have a right to self-defense in the Palestinian ter territories. And I, I will, would assume that this is one key part of what South Africa is going to bring into the merits phase. In terms of, before we talk about in terms of what happens next um, with the court itself and what could, what could happen in terms of provisional measures, could you just explain a bit about the International Court of Justice, which is the United Nations' top legal body? It's got 15 judges on it. Um, many would look at it and go, well, you know, each judge is appointed by a particular state is it basically just a forum for international real politique where each judge is just a stooge of their state and will just reflect the international power dynamics and the the, the strategic interests of that given state or is it more complicated than that and how do you think the makeup of the judges the 15 judges what do you think that is there any sense of how that could bode for the outcome yeah, that's actually a very good question because I've seen um, many, many people commenting on this, saying, "Oh, but it's impossible to think that you know an Australian judge will side with South Africa because they they're appointed by that state." Um, that is a very common misconception. That is not how it works at all. Um, the judges don't represent um, their states. They don't have to vote in accordance with their state policies. Um, they have to vote in accordance with their own, you know, uh, approach to the law. And this, of course, this, I mean, uh, I'm not going to be naive enough to say that there is no role played here by a political process of selecting judges. Um, but these judges come from um, different traditions and they should not be seen as, as mouthpieces for their state. Um, in fact, uh, the um, for example, the, the court just elected new judges. So the, the, the court composition that we have right now will change for the merits phase. Uh, for example, th there won't be a Russian judge. Um, there will be a Mexican judge instead of a Jamaican judge. Uh, it, well, um, and the I guess the main point is um, these judges um, will represent specific traditions. So there is actually... Um, there might be surprises for people that think that they're just mouthpieces. Um, the Australian uh, judge, Hillary Charlesworth, for example, um, is expected to be among the judges that would um, theoretically be um, more willing to you know, accept South Africa's position. And she's you know, uh, Australian. Um, and then um, there are, um, let's say it shouldn't, we shouldn't ignore the fact that this court exists to operationalize a thing called international law right. and the international law is itself a product of a specific history i say this as someone who studies the history of international law it's filled with it's filled with genocide uh, in its history it's filled with war crimes and it's filled with colonialism so i don't want to uh, to be naive in saying this will have no no influence um there is a there's a phrase that the people who deal with um, you know, post-colonial approaches to international law and critical approaches to international law, uh, we I guess we struggle with, is that the idea that the um, it's that the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house. 
right? You, it is difficult to use a international law to solve a conflict that, like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that is a product of international law itself, right? I mean, it goes back to to the, the 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 days of the British Mandate of Palestine and all of this. This is, is this is what international law does. So I, I do want to be cautious with this that there is a a, a broader context here involved um, that complicates things. Um, but at the same time, uh, it's not like this is going to be a committee of states that will say, no, of course not. Um, this lawsuit is ridiculous. Not at all. It will be a reasoned, reasoned decision. It will be a, a good faith decision. Like the people that will make these arguments will generally believe what they're saying. It's not going to be a real politic thing. Um, the thing is that the things that people believe are often encased within specific cultural settings. And like the, the idea of, for example, um, is Palestine a state is very contextual to where you learned international law, right? Before I ask about provisional measures, so I mean, for those who don't know, um, this actual case would take years, but provisional measures can be issued um, in the meantime. Um, what is the power, before I ask you about that, what is the actual power of the ICJ? Because a lot of people go, well, they've issued rulings in, against Israel. Israel just goes, yeah, and, and what? And just castigates in a kind of rogue statey manner, the United Nations and everything associated with it. So what, can, what does it actually mean in practice? It's power. Right. So there's two elements to this. There's one short term and one long term. In the short term, I'll say, so the, the court's rulings are binding, as in states need to comply with them, especially because Israel, before this issue, has been, um, uh, has dealt with advisory opinions, which there's debate about how binding they are. But this would be binding. It has to be complied with. And of course, uh, we all know international law has no international police force uh, that can compel you to comply. The Security Council is theoretically in charge of making sure that these judgments are complied with, but the U.S. holds veto power, so that's not going to work out. So I know there's a little bit of helplessness with that, that Israel can just ignore the, the ruling, but there is also um, there are also mechanisms um, in, um, well, first of all, reputational mechanisms. It's not easy to just say, I'm gonna not going to comply with, with these rules, but the more important ones, I guess, are also domestic ones in that... Um, in countries like the UK, like the US, um, there are laws designed to prevent our states from, these states from trading weapons or having links with countries that violate human rights. So those mechanisms could be activated um, with a ruling like this. Um, that's on the short term. On the long term, and I guess this is of little consolation to people, but let's think about for a second how the world looked like in you know, 200 years ago. I, I come from Latin America. 200 years ago, if a country, say Argentina, say Venezuela, didn't pay its foreign debt, the next day it would have a fleet of English, German, French warships blockading mm -hmm. its ports. They would put soldiers in the customs agency in the port and everyone trading with Argentina would uh, pay to Germany who would keep the or England who would keep the money. That was not only legal, but absolutely normalized and accepted and that's 200 years ago right um 20 years ago an african country submitting a claim in the international court of justice a contentious claim um against israel for genocide was unthinkable like this would not happen um and so there is an argument for the long arch of history here in that yes international law and the international community moves slowly 
and sometimes it moves backwards, like we've recently seen um, in, in Europe and the United States. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, we have moved away from a world of like gumbo diplomacy, for example. Yeah. That happens less. It still happens, but it happens less overtly. So this, if you insert this case within that longer process, there are important victories that can be made in the mid to long term in this, in this case that are perhaps even more influential for people 10, 20, 30, 100 years from now than just the, 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 the moment that we're living in. Not to say, of course, that there are no immediate things that we cannot do. Like I said, there are domestic mechanisms to keep states like the US, the UK from collaborating with countries that are committing genocide, for example, or countries that are failing to sanction genocide, because that's another thing we should discuss is the, this case is not just about is genocide being committed. It's also about whether Israel is punishing people that commit genocide and uh, incite, incite to genocide. And is Israel preventing genocide in, it, from happening in Gaza? And, and that's a very striking point, actually, isn't it? Because the Genocide Convention of 1948, which Israel, of course, is a signatory to, it, it doesn't just, as people might expect, prohibit the acts of genocide. It also in, in prohibits, makes a criminal offence inciting genocide. Israel interpreted that into its own legal system in 1950 and actually made, at the time it remains, it introduced the death penalty. Um, and I've checked with an Israeli, uh, a, sorry, a legal specialist on Israeli law. It remains, in theory, although the death penalty has only been enacted twice in Israeli history, but it is a capital offence not only to commit genocide, but there are four other crimes, including conspiracy to commit genocide and inciting genocide, and the law says they should be treated the same as actually someone who commits genocide. And the death penalty actually applies um, in all cases, um, though in practice that, you know, that hasn't happened or wouldn't happen. But anyway, it's just quite interesting. Well, um, Israel has been a bit of a trap here also, because in its case, it is arguing that, um, you know, these leaders, these officials that have made all of these like um, Amalek statements and the um, um, all these genocidal statements that South Africa has complained of, they're saying, well, but but they don't have operational control of hostilities, right? So so they that does not demonstrate intent. The obvious response to that is, and I'm sure South Africa will do that, is okay. They don't hold operational um, duties, but they still said something genocidal. And your troopers listened to them and they did things that we consider are genocidal. So what are you doing to keep these people from making these statements? The, 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 I think it was a minister that said, let's nuke Gaza. What did you do with them? Did you slap them on the wrist or did you prosecute them? And then what are you doing to the soldiers that you find that are committing things um, that could be considered genocidal? Um, again, let's not forget, uh, yes, there could be an argument that this entire war is genocidal. There's also the possibility that the court says, look, the entire war is not genocidal. This specific act was a genocide act. It, that's what happened with the Bosnia-Serbia case, right? The entire war was not uh, decided as a genocide, but Srebrenica itself was a genocidal act. So if Israel proves that it has, um, uh, let's say no genocidal intent based on these assertions. It, practice its own practice could could also reveal genocidal intent. But if these assertions are not sufficient because they don't have no operational control of hostilities, okay. But that proving that means that you didn't do enough to prevent genocide or to sanction the incitement of genocide because Israel isn't doing it. If we were seeing Israeli politicians go to jail, that would be. The 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Different. Really important point. I mean, I mean they, they tried to defend, for example, Benjamin Netanyahu, who obviously is, has operational decisions. He's prime minister who... Um, who referred to Amalek, and they tried to bog that down in theological um, discussion. But also, we know, obviously, the Minister of Defence uh, used human animals, and they claim that's about Hamas, but he was talking about um, siege measures against the civilian population. But I suppose the, the really important point there is incitement is criminalised for a reason, um, as, a, as it, in, in itself, and that is because it has, the argument is, it can have genocidal implications in conduct, and the argument of South Africa is, even if they're, those other genocidal statements are not issued by people with operational power, they can lead to genocidal conduct. That's the whole reason, isn't it, why the law criminalizes it? But just in terms of what happens next, in terms of provisional rulings, because again, you know, this is why it's so important to talk to you, because we'll end, I think, on an optimistic note, and people will see why. But I think some people have built up, well, this was such an overwhelming case by South Africa as, as we would see it that there'll just be these kind of very clear, damning provisional rulings, which will say there's clearly a, at least a huge risk of genocide here. The war, the fighting must immediately end. And that's just not probably likely at all to happen, is it? Um, I, I, I don't want to be the, the, the negative one, but, but, but yeah, I, I don't think that it will be the case. Um, and I mean, not, not because of any, um, Kind of conspiracy or anything but just because of how this case is is working i don't see the court um addressing israel's one of israel's key uh, arguments here that this is israel's right to defend itself um in a 20-page provisional measure uh, order um i think that that is something that the court will want to reserve for the uh, the merit stage and so i think at the provisional measure state um it will have to acknowledge the fact that it doesn't have jurisdiction over Hamas. So it cannot actually order Hamas mm. to stop hostilities, right? Because it's not a member state. Hamas right. is a country. Gaza right. isn't a nation. Therefore, it's not a member of the, it's not part of the ICJ or the, or the Genocide Convention. Right. Um, Hamas is a non-state armed group that is operating in the territory of another state, which is Palestine. Um, or if you're Israel and you don't recognize, uh, um, you know, Palestinian statehood, um, the occupied Palestinian territories. Um, and so the court is not, um, probably not going to address that at the provisional measures stage, um, because it needs to acknowledge this fact that Hamas exists. So it, say, for example, one thing that the court could do is say, look, you, you need to being, let's say, um, I guess, um, 
I don't know if optimistic with this, but like the court could say, you can defend yourself from further attacks, but your original response to uh, October 7th needs to be um, limited in this way, this way, this like don't attack hospitals, don't do this, don't order 1.2 million people to evacuate from uh, one day to the other. Um, but save if there's a, a uh, you don't need to like withdraw all your troops, but you need to do these conditions and you need to you need to let a fact finding mission come in and investigate. You need to let the press to come in. All of those things are possible. Um, I'm not sure that the court will say stop hostilities point blank because Israel made a, a, an, an interesting claim today in, in its defense. It said you cannot do that because that would be what the court did in the um, Ukraine v. Russia case. Um, and it claimed in, in that case is manifestly different from my case from from South Africa v Israel, because what what uh, Russia was arguing was that it had a right to intervene in Ukraine um, because there was genocide happening in Ukraine. And the court said, no, no, actually, the genocide convention does not allow you to go into Ukraine. Um, the only thing that can allow you to go into another country forcefully is a Security Council authorization of self-defense. None of them happened here. This is a blatant act of aggression, so you need to stop. And Israel is saying that's not the same as, it, as, as this case, because in this case, there is an ongoing armed conflict, and you don't have power over one part of the conflict, Hamas. So if you order me to stop, and you cannot get uh, Hamas to stop, that means that I need to be attacked by my enemy. Right. So um, because of this, the, the court would need to address the Israeli claim of self-defense. The Israeli claim of self-defense is a long-standing Palestinian argument that Israel doesn't have a right to self-defense within the state of Palestine or the Palestinian occupied territories. Um, because it, uh, it argues that, uh, as the court itself did in 2004 in the wall advisory opinion, um, that if you're occupying territory, then you cannot possibly have self-defense against the territory which you are already controlling. Right? Um, so there's a big argument to have here that will probably bring us to the merits on does Israel have that right? And it would be um, an incredible victory for Palestine if the court said in a binding ruling um, that, in effect, uh, when Israel occupied the West Bank, uh, well, probably not the West Bank because we're going to talk exclusively about Gaza, but when Israel occupied Gaza and then withdrew and left control and the, all of that story, um, um, it is uh, the logical thing for, for South Africa to argue is, well, you're saying that Russia did not have a right to intervene in Ukraine because it was an act of aggression because there was no possible claim to have of self-defense. So, South Africa would need to argue, well, do you have a valid claim to occupy Palestine? And remember, uh, Israel has a peace treaty with um, Egypt. Um, Egypt is the country that was you know, occupying Gaza at the time of the 1968 war. So the, the war between Egypt and Israel is done. So you're not occupying Gaza because of that war. You're not occupying the West Bank because you're at war with with uh, Jordan either. So, what is your legal basis for occupying uh, Gaza? And of course, Israel will say, "I'm not occupying Gaza," um, and that'll be the discussion. But there is a scenario here where, um, yeah, the court says, "Actually, yeah, I mean, what is the rationale for you to be in Gaza?" And that would be huge. 
that alone would be huge. It's not probably not the, the result that everyone's imagining. Everyone would like it to the court to say, oh, this is whole genocidal war needs to stop. But winning on that front would also be important. Yeah, I mean, but before I ask this, the final question, just generally about, I guess, the question of, of, of what has been achieved, regardless, I suppose, of what the outcome is, is, you know, we did hear, obviously, what Israel did, as, as predicted, partly was to focus on the atrocities committed by Hamas on the 7th of October, when atrocities, war crimes were committed against Israeli civilians. Um, and the whole point is South Africa has acknowledged that and accepted that. Um, the point it made is there was never, ever any justification for genocide in response to anything, literally anything. So it's actually not relevant in, in that sense. Like those atrocities are something to condemn, but they're not relevant to whether. So I just I'm wondering because then the question I, I'm just wondering how they might adjudicate because that's what South Africa anticipated, didn't they? South Africa anticipated that Israel would say this is self-defense against atrocities committed on the 7th of October. Mm -hmm. And they anticipated it in two ways. A, by saying it didn't begin on the 7th of October. There's a long history here. Genocide is a continuum. It was explained as such by the man who coined it. Therefore, we need to put the context of uh, colonization, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, and so on. But they also said, well, you can't do, you, you, this is not, you, you can never claim this as self-defense. What do you think, how they'd respond to that? I don't know. Yeah, I think so. South Africa had 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 two points. Like the, the first one was you don't have a right to self defense in occupied territory. You are the occupying power in Gaza, and that's it. Um, the second claim was the one that you're saying. Like in in the event that we decide that you do have it, um, then that self defense is taking the form of genocide, and and genocide is an absolute prohibition in international law. Nothing can justify it, um, and. I mean, I, I think it is um, uh, your, your initial point uh, of, of Hamas atrocities. I mean, yes, what, what Hamas did was atrocious. It was, uh, it was for all intents and purposes, I mean, at least from my personal point of view, it was itself a genocide or a genocidal act. Um, but it cannot justify a second set of atrocities. Even less, it cannot justify another genocide. So the argument that... Um, um, Hamas's, Hamas's tactics are the are what is guiding um, Israeli conduct, which is the claim that Israel did. All I'm doing, I'm doing because Hamas is shielding behind civilians. Um, seen from the eyes of South Africa is, yes, but if to do that, you need to commit genocide, then you're doing it wrong. Um, and there's, of course, a second argument that is not on, on trial here. It's not, it's not in, in, in the docket here. But, but the second argument is, okay, it's, if it's not genocide, if it's systematic war crimes, it's also not allowed. There's just no jurisdiction in the International Court of Justice to make that claim. Um, but very often, this is something that happened in the Gambia v. Myanmar case, um, countries that are uh, defending themselves against accusations of genocide have to concede this is not genocide because it is crimes against humanity and war crimes. Right. This is something that Israel did not do. Yeah. It, 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 but it might end up, I mean, in, in the broader merits hearings, it's something that might come up, right? And they might yeah. have to concede that. Because South Africa tried to do, they, they anticipated that, didn't they? They were saying, look, we understand there are, there are crimes against humanity that aren't genocide. We're trying to make out this is a separate, this is separate from that. Because obviously crimes of humanity are part of genocide, but they also, they're, they're a precondition for genocide, but crimes against humanity doesn't mean genocide is being committed. Just finally then, in terms of what's been gained, 
And um, what could, you know, because lots of Palestinians I've spoken to actually feel whatever happens, Israel's impunity has taken a big old knock. That actually the sense Israel has had, and partly explains why it's become in rhetoric, rhetoric, so we can all agree a genocidal hothouse, literally just saying willy nilly genocidal statements like confetti to the point where the attorney general had to intervene in Israel to say that, begging them to stop on the grounds it would incriminate Israel. Uh, but then some continued because they were just so addicted to genocidal sentiment. So just finally, what's been gained? What can Palestinians say, regardless of outcome, what's been achieved here? So I think before I go into that, there is a scenario where South Africa wins. I just I want to say that outright. Good. That's I mean, right. it's, there is a, there, such a scenario exists. Um, it's not like the um, it's not an impossibility. I I, I feel like I'm <laughs> I don't want to be perceived as too negative here. Um, oh, no. I just I'm just um, cognizant of the limitations within the, the setting that we're in, um, in a world that doesn't allow a state to say you're committing war crimes, you're committing crimes against humanity, and you're committing genocide. And then the court can say, well, in my opinion, it's just war crimes. That doesn't exist. And so we need to get through that hurdle. And it's a very tall hurdle because of the history of the Genocide Convention um, of proving intent. Um, it probably shouldn't be that high a, a, a hurdle like we have this impression that genocide is this like once in a lifetime crime that we will only see it once in our entire lifetimes that's not true like if you think about it any country most countries will have one genocide in their history at least they just we just call it our national mythos right I, i'm from peru I, I can assure you peru has committed more than one genocide yeah um against indigenous people in the amazon against like indigenous people in, in the andes um I, I i i can i can make that critique i i understand that um because so people I, have often seen it as simply in the popular imaginations that there's the holocaust um and then there's rwanda and bosnia but actually beyond that people don't really have an understanding of genocide and that's often yes and and i mean it is important to to be aware of the of the you know the absolute uh, extraordinary levels of systematic brutality and genocide of the holocaust as like probably the most systematic most open uh, genocide in history but but within other degrees of genocides genocide is actually how the world was made our current global order was built on colonial genocides yeah. um and so it is not a once in a lifetime Crime. And this means that probably the, the intent requirement shouldn't be this high. Um, actually, when the Genocide Convention was uh, first drafted, um, African-American communi communities in the United States uh, uh, tried to use the convention to argue that uh, Jim Crow was genocide. And, and uh, much of the hesit hesitance in the United States about ratifying the convention was, but what if they decide then that Jim Crow was genocide? So the bar was set really high for you know not the best reasons and we we end up in this scenario where it's like the um jack nicholson and a few good men having to yell that he ordered the court read as the only proof of genocide right um and that's not how it should be but but that's the limitations of the system that we that we are operating in we do have a high hurdle um so uh, so so i'll return to my original point i i do think there's a scenario where we can like the where, where south africa can win this case um but there is more than one um other potential big victories for the cause of uh, past the palestinian people 
in this case, including the self-defense argument that I've made. But the one that you made in particular is also very important. This idea that um, it's not just this specific um, iteration of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that is being evaluated here. The entire global South is watching this case with a lot of attention. And there is a claim from the hegemonic powers right now of a rules-based international order. It's a very strong claim. It is something that they are very, um, they, they place great importance in. And I feel like um, on one result, yes, South Africa prevails. And therefore, there is a rules-based international order. Um, because in, in, in whatever degree it prevails, there was a system through which to hold Israel to account, whether about genocide, whether about um, uh, not preventing genocide or not punishing those that incite genocide, whatever victories achieved, there would be a mechanism, a rule of law that you can follow in this, um, in this system. The other alternative is one where that end result is completely disappointing. Um, and then the whole idea that there is such a rules-based order collapses. And that opens up spaces for other powers, hopefully, you know, democratic powers um, like Brazil, like South Africa itself, um, to carve, um, to use their, their newly gained geopolitical relevance to carve new interpretations and to be, and this is very important, to be rule enforcers in the international relations. Because right now, the whole game of international relations is who can get enough power to be a rule bender. If you yeah. get enough power, you can bend the rules. Yeah. And we, we're seeing this also with like China and Russia. If they gain enough power, they can bend the rules and invade Ukraine and, and you know, um, uh, commit abuses in Hong Kong. Um, there is another way of doing this. And I, maybe it's idealist of me, but there is a way where you can get enough power to be a rule enforcer. And that's what South Africa is doing here. It's yeah. trying to be a rule enforcer. Do I wish that they were a little bit more, you know, tougher on Russia? Yes, I, I would wish that. Um, but at the same time, um, um, they didn't invite Putin to, to Johannesburg recently. So I just hope that as a result of all this, we can, we can carve these new understandings for the world and how it should work and how it should be about actually a rules-based order and not just the real politics as you described it in the beginning. That's a great way to end. I think that does show optimism regardless of what happens. And, you know, I do think South Africa's case is truly historic. I think it will have huge repercussions for a long time. It'll certainly be studied, I think, uh, for a very, very long time um, by academics, but also by people who, you know, who, who, who strongly um, follow the struggles of liberation of people who suffer huge, huge oppression and look for whatever tools are at their disposal at any given time. Um, but uh, please do share this video and uh, for those watching or listening, press like and subscribe. But along Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.